Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this Father's Day. We thank you that we can celebrate you as our dad, and we can also celebrate the courageous dads in the room. God, we just want to pray that you would encourage us, that you would affirm your fatherhood in us, Lord, that we would receive from you today this manna that would equip us to grow to the next step as dads. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. On this Father's Day, I want to um, just begin with Father God, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but whenever there's a marriage seminar or whenever there's some kind of leadership seminar or some kind of topic on a particular thing that I'm involved with, I always kind of approach that in kind of in a, a bit of a fearful way because I'm very aware of my own brokenness, my own shortcomings, and how I don't meet up. I don't know about you guys, but... That's just the way my first response is. And so I think the finished work, grace way to look at this is really to look at God and not to first start at us, not to start looking at ourselves, the way to change ourselves. And I think that we live in a culture here where it's a very self-made culture, a very self-reliant culture. Everybody pulls their own load and um, they've got to change themselves. But that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is different, and it starts with God the Father. And I just want to talk about two things here this morning. What does it mean that God is a Father? And number two, how does it affirm, how does God affirm in us his fatherhood as dads? And I can say that my first week as a dad, I only got uh, 20, uh, 52 times 18 more weeks to do that. So I'm just starting off here. What does it mean that God is Father, and how does, that, how does God affirm that in us as dads? I think the first thing that many times we are dealing with is our own dad, our, the image of our own dad, whether he was there or whether he was not. And every one of us, all of our dads, um, are, are broken in a lot of ways, and we saw that growing up, and that was something that in some way impacted us. And so... Many times, that's, that affects a person's understanding of authority, either the over-authority or the under-understanding of authority. But that's why we want to begin with God. That's why we want to start with God the Father, God as our Father. And I think this is something that is a continual process in growing to understand what does it mean to be, to be what does it mean that God is our Father? You know, when we look at action films, especially the ones that come out during the summertime, these kinds of movies, uh, all, the role, all the roles in these movies, the popular ones, are either cartoon characters or they're fictional superhumans. Okay? They are one-dimensional. They are on the screen. They are flat. They are either heroes or they're villains or they are warriors. They are not nuanced and they're not complex because we can see them on the screen. They're one-dimensional. They're one-dimensional. And as a result of these one-dimensional heroes and villains, and by the way, now some of my favorite uh, superheroes are now villains. I don't know how that happens. But um, how, however we look at them, they are one-dimensional, and there's no personal engagement with these, with these cartoon one-dimensional heroes or villains. There's no personal engagement. There's no personableness to it. You cannot go to a movie and tell 
your favorite hero what's going on in his in, in your life. There's no personal engagement. Though most people in Western society, most people in our society believe in God, but they but the God that they believe in is more like a cartoon God, more like a one-dimensional God. They have like they have um, description of of him as as a great force of energy or they might, they might believe that God is a kind, benevolent grandfather or God is a stern judge. Uh, J.B. Phillips wrote a book, very good book, little booklet. If you can get a hold of it and read it, it's called Your God is Too Small. And he goes over the seven, six or seven different concepts that people have of God, that he's a police, that he's a policeman, or he's a loving friend, or he is the God who is the unmovable mover God, or, or so on and so on. But, the, but it always comes to this, that people's concept of God is generally flat and one-dimensional. He is the God, he is the God on the screen. He's the God that's talked about at the, on, from, the, from the stage in a church. Uh, he, he is flat. He is, he is not interpersonal. He is not engaging. He is not someone that is intimate. What we want to say today is that God is not one-dimensional. God is not one-dimensional. He is a real God. He is very deep. He is multifaceted. He is so multidimensional, and I don't want to sound science fiction here, but he, he is in all, he is in everything. His presence permeates every aspect of our universe. He is knowable, and he is intimate. Now, maybe you didn't know your dad very well, or maybe you don't feel like your dad that's knowable, but God is knowable. He is intimate. And I think that dads, or men in general, have a problem with that word intimate because there's a lot of there's a lot of issues inside of us as men this week is my first week as being a dad and this has been amazing my wife's been incredible i've seen some incredible it's amazing when you have a kid you see another part you see something in your mate that you never saw before it just kind of shines out right you guys you guys see that yeah it's like wow that was in you that's incredible especially when she's getting up in the middle of the night and changing diapers and I'm just passed out on the bed thinking I'm a great dad. <laughs> God, is, God is not one-dimensional. He's knowable, he's intimate, and he, is, he wants to know us. So what does it mean that God is a father? That's the first thing we want to say today. What does it mean that God is a father? And I just want to say a few things that you probably haven't heard before. I want it to be fresh. And I want you to think, and I'm not going to speak long, but I just want you to think with me. There are three characteristics of what it means that God is Father. Okay? And before you and I, again, I'll say this again. If your dad, before you condemn yourself, if your kids are not talking to you, or if you're broken, if you have unresolved uh, relationship issues, or if you're, if you're not in good communication with your dad, I want you to go be, I want the Holy Spirit to shine into your heart in Romans 5, verse 5, the love of God that will show you how to love your dad. And that... That's going to be, for some people, that's just a major, that is just a major thing. But we can do it. What does it mean that God is Father? Number one, absolute safety. Understanding who God is, it means we understand absolute safety. Number two, I'm going to go over these in a minute. Compassionate anger. Does that make sense? Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Compassionate anger. Okay, that's number two. And number three, understanding who God is. As a father is to understand what is ultimate home. What does it mean to be at home? 
Let's start with the first one, absolute safety. Well, we read these in verse, in the verses that we just read in Psalm 103, verse 13. If you look at that with me, and if, if I think it's on the screen behind me, but as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. I think in the, in the King James, it says that we're made of dust, right? That we are dust. Notice this, that absolute safety, first of all, is the deep love of God for us. The compassion of God on his children. Let me explain this. In the Hebrew, there are several instances where this word compassion shines. The first example, or one of the examples that we can see, is Isaiah 49, verse 15. The word compassion is used for, and guess, guess what? A nursing mother. It's funny because this is a surprisingly remarkable word, and it has to do with overwhelming, visceral, you know what that word visceral means? Radical love. And it's not just a male fatherly love, but it's unique to see that it also, in Isaiah 49, verse 15, in another verse, it relates to a mother's love. Is that interesting? That God is not just a male deity in heaven, like Apollos or Zeus or Mercury or these, these, interpers- these, these impersonal, one-dimensional gods that are male beings that have no respect for, for females. When we look at God, we have to understand that God, although he's referred to as male, as he, he, is, it is, he, is refer- he has the characteristics of a mother's compassion. Does that make sense? This is why what happens when you have a religion, a worldwide religion that doesn't understand the compassion of the Holy Spirit or the comfort that the Holy Spirit can give to a person, what happens? The religion turns into a male-worshipping deity, and there's no mother's love in that. And that's why in some religions you see the exaltation of a woman plugged into their trinity. Does that make sense? Because inside of us we have been made... For we have been made for compassion and for that comfort that we see in a mother. Now, this is not a Mother's Day sermon, but I just wanted to bring that out. That when Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they were one and they were called Adam. There was no gender description. There was no gender distinction, although they were two different genders uniquely in their creation. But Adam was both Eve and Adam. I'll let, that, I'll let you think about that. So the second meaning that we see here, it's Isaiah 49, verse 15. Can a woman forget the baby nursing at her breast? Can she fail to have compassion on the child that's sucking at her breast? Yes, she can. But I, God says, will never forget you. Isn't that great? I will never forget you. That's compassion. Another place this word compassion is used is in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 26. And the story goes, if you remember correctly, there were two women. And during the night, one woman, um, her baby died during the night. And when, they, when she woke up, when the other mother woke up, she had discovered that the, woman's who ba- the mother whose baby died during the night came and took her baby and called it her own. And there began this incredible, incredible conflict to the point where their case was brought before King Solomon. And King Solomon, with this incredible wisdom that he had been given by God, understood, I will, we will detect who really is the mother. And King Solomon said, give me a sword. We will, 
we'll divide the baby in half, and each one of you can have half of the baby. And you know, we know the story goes that the, the, that the mother, the real mother, said, no, spare the baby. And in, in essence, she's saying to the king, I'm lying. Actually, it's her baby. I want the baby to go to her, the, the one who's not the mother, for the sake of saving the baby. And so this mother is saying, in essence, I'm, I'm lying. I'm the one that's wrong here. I'm taking upon myself the blame and the, um, and the guilt of in this lying in this situation so that my baby can be saved. Don't you see redemption in that? This is the redemptive quality of the compassion of God. This is God's compassion. God has done the same thing. He sent his son. Jesus came in the form of a baby, a weak, meek baby. What did Solomon do? He said, what did the other mother say? No, divide the baby. The one that wasn't the mother said, oh, just divide the baby. Because the opposite of compassion is selfishness. And if I can't have the whole baby, then nobody gets the baby. This is the, this is the nature of the human condition. And so God has, so Solomon says this. He goes, he goes give the baby to the woman who, whose uh, emotions and compassion yearns within, yearns within her soul because that is the true mother. The, the true motherhood or the true compassion of God is always found in, the, the, in, in this way through the compassion of a mother. We see this in this case. And so God has actually done the same thing. So let's look at verse 14. For he knows our frame. He earnestly remembers and imprints on his heart that we are dust. I just read that from the Amplified Bible. Psalm 103, verse 14. He knows our frame. He earnestly remembers. I love that word, earnestly. It means that there is this earnest, intentional understanding that God is continually bringing back to his mind that we are made of dust. I like that because sometimes I use that in my prayer life. God, like, I'm just made of dust. Like, what do you expect from me? I'm... I'm just made of dust. I'm a finite creature living in just in this very complex world. You ever do that in your prayer life? Like, God, I don't got this. <laughs> I don't understand what's going on. I'm not, I am not capable of making this happen. And, and God knows our frame. He earnestly remembers and, and imprints on his heart that we are dust. Imprints on his heart. That is so beautiful in the Hebrew. I just want to ask a question here, because when we read this, he's, when we read this in verse 14, it says that God is compassionate, loving, etc., etc., and then there's a condition there for those who fear him, right? Let me ask you this question. Why does God love his children? And somebody might say it because we fear him. But God loves those, yes, God loves those, though that, those that fear him, but if you look carefully at the original, it means... Fear means awe and wonder. It just means to be in a state of just incredible awe and impression and just incredible wonder. And that is actually a state of worship. God reveals his love. And when we, and what it's saying here is that we experience God's compassion when we just sit back and we just go into a place of awe and wonder with God. When we just say, God, you are so incredible. You have done so many great things. Look where I am today with my family. Look where I am in my, in my business, in my personal life. Look where you have brought me today. I am in a state of awe and wonder. And I think that I just want to challenge us. When was the last time, and I say this to myself too, when was the last time that we just in our heart or even physically fell on our face before the Lord and just 
put away all of our prayer lists and all of our needs and all of our pressing uh, problems on our minds and just begin to worship God. I just say, God, I'm just going to worship you today in my car or go for a walk or in your prayer closet. Just worshiping God and just counting your blessings and counting what God has done in your life. I, I want to encourage When was the last time you did that with your spouse? My wife and I try to do that, and, and, and we, often, we often forget to do it. But when we go for a walk or when we're together or even in a conversation, just initiating a, a, a conversation in husband and wife or friend-to-friend um, terminology, hasn't God been amazing? Like, what, look what God did over these, last, over these last few months this past year. Look, at, it's amazing what God has done. We begin to, as a married couple, as a family with the kids, or as a personal, in your personal life, begin to go over what God has done. It's incredible where God has brought us, isn't it? It's astounding. I mean, we could be dead somewhere on the street somewhere. We could have died 20 years ago in a situation where, where our life was in danger. So many things in our life could have gone wrong. Many times people come to this crossroads, to this fork in the road, and without God, without God's grace, and without the sovereignty of God's love, we would have gone the left to the left to destruction. And when, it has, when, it, when we come to a fork in the road, many times, every time, God has brought us to a place of, of abundance and blessing. And he's brought us to a place where we understand that we are absolutely safe in his love. And this is what we're talking about here the first point, at being absolutely safe in God's Father love. People's impression is, of the Bible is that when you're good and when you're right and when you're doing what God wants you to do, he loves you more, right? That's how we could read that verse. God loves those that fear him, right? Well, if I do good and I keep doing good and I keep adding those kudos and those, you know, on the, on the, on the, on the, on the scale of, of good and bad, if the good outweighs the bad, then I guess I'm going to come out okay and God's going to love me more. But can I tell you something? That is not what we read in the Bible. That is not what we see in the story of the prodigal son. We see the elder son, the good guy, and we see the prodigal son. Jesus did not come to save the righteous. He came to sinners. When we look at the Bible, we are seeing here that we are seeing that that it says in Romans that where sin has abounded, grace much more abounds. Now, this is kind of hard for human logic. Immediately we respond and we say, but, and let's balance that and let's just say this. I'll get to that in a second. But when we look at it like this, think of it as a parent. You ever look at your kid and, and, and your kid's a mess? Just a total mess. Like, just total meltdown. And, and it's just a disaster. And you look at your kid and you just think, what a mess. But there's like this compassion in your heart for that, right? Situation. And like it seems like the more the mess is, I mean, there's that part of us like, you know, i got to intervene here. And it may not be this mushy, sentimental love, but it may be sometimes a sense of urgency. Like, i got to get involved. i got to jump in here because this kid is in trouble. That's love. Love is not an emotion. We know that. Love, because emotions can't think. But the love of God thinks. The love of God pre-plans. The love of God predestinates. The love of God sets a plan out. And so what, hap- what we see here is, is that, is that the, the, the more broken and the more um, 
a messed up situation that we are in, the more we can experience the compassion of God in our life. Let me just go to the next thing here. Is that we are, and so this is the first point, we are absolutely safe in his love. Nothing can separate us. Isn't that amazing? When you think of adoption and when you think of bringing someone in from the outside, and Psalm 68 talks about that God takes, God takes the solitary, the lonely, and he puts them in families. It's one of my favorite verses. I love that. Think of that verse with me. God takes the solitary. I think there's a verse for Texas. I don't know. I'm not a Texan, but uh, uh, yet maybe I am. I got a Texan license. I got to get, I got to get verified first, and, and then I can get accepted, get my Texan passport. But I think that some parts of the United States, because of its pioneer culture, because of the roughness of life, the, the years of the settlers coming from the east and the west coast, or mostly the east coast, coming and settling in some of these wild lands and facing, um, facing Indians and facing um, uh, robbers and facing just these incredibly uh, dangerous situations. There is a, there's a DNA that's built into some people that is self-reliant. Um, there's, no room for, there's no room for comfort and love and you've got to stick it out, and you're on your own. And you know what that does? That creates loneliness. It creates loneliness. And the neighborhood that we live in is just that we've just landed there by the grace of God. There's a lot of people that work in the oil and gas industry. A lot of lonely people. There's a lot of lonely people there. they got their whole life set out. But, man, they, it's like they live in these prisons called their homes. And they're lonely, lonely people. But we are not alone. We, and we talked about this last week. We were absolutely safe in God's love, and nothing can separate us because God so loved, his wor- loved the world. He gave his son. And I just want to tell you this morning, you are unconditionally loved, and you are unconditionally safe in the fathers. And this is when we read Psalm 103, we're reading about a family love. And guess what? You're not going to get this from anybody else in the world except for God. You're not going to get this love from someone that's very close to you. Sometimes in our very close relationships uh, from our spouse or from our dear friends or from people, we demand things from people that only God can give you. If, if, if we're single today, no one in your life is going to be able to give to you what only God can give you. And you know something? When you begin to fellowship with the fullness of Christ in you, then that is when you begin to understand the Father's love. We're talking about the Father's love here this morning. Number two, so the first thing that fathers, that God as a father means, it means that we are absolutely safe. That we are in this finished work, that the work has been completed. I love that Jesus said at the beginning of his relationship with us, he said, it is finished. (laughs) Whenever there's something unfinished in your life, when you look at yourself as a dad and say, you know something, I could have done better. I should have done better. Um, I could have done it that way. I'm sure that every dad thinks that way. You look at your kids and just say, wow, you know, if I was just there at that point in time in his life, he wouldn't have turned out, or she wouldn't have turned out that way. Or, I think there's a lot of times that dads can just over-introspect themselves in a way that God doesn't even do that. And you know something? Whenever we're in that place, whenever we're in a situation like that, we have to understand that God, that God is greater and that God is going to intervene in my brokenness. God is going to shine through. I, when I look at my dad, he's still alive now, I can see the times in his, in his shortcomings and his brokenness that he defaulted to God's faithfulness. And he just showed me God. And it took a lot of vulnerability on his part to do that. But you know something? When you, when you, and, I as, you, know, we, you and I as dads show our kids God's faithfulness in our shortcoming, 
there's something built in your kid that's going to read that and he's going to understand it in his little spirit. Okay, does that make sense? I think as a dad, sometimes we want to be all powerful, all providing. Let's get this done. I'm going to get it done. And I'm, I'm very much like that. I'm like the kind of person that's like, um, I'll get this. I'll do it. And there are times when we just can't do it as a dad. And we can sit back and say, you know what, it fails. And at that moment, we just have to say, God, I'm shortcoming in this. You have to shine through in this, in my, in my, um, in my shortcomings. Number two, compassion, anger. This is very interesting. Follow me here. Number one, absolute safety. Number two, in God, we are absolutely safe. Number two, understanding God as a father. We learn what compassionate anger is. Verses 8, 9, and 10. Let me read these verses in Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, and I guess I'm reading this in Amplified, in steadfast love. He will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us for according to our iniquities. You ever read those verses and say, God will not harbor his anger forever? And we think, does God harbor anger? It says here that he does, but not forever. Let me explain what that means. God is a father whose anger is not payback anger. Does that make sense? God has, a, God has an anger that's not a payback anger. Right off the bat in verse 10, anger, it's explained to us that God's anger in verse 10 is not based on paying us back for our sins. I think as a dad, I remember there were times when I really embarrassed my dad in public. You know, and then I got spanked because I embarrassed my dad in public. And then I felt a lot of shame for that. God is saying here is that he doesn't do that for us. When we embarrass God publicly, <laughs> he does not pay us back for our sins. The anger that God has that's being, read, that's being spoken about here, and I think that we as grace people that love to finish work, there's sometimes there are, there are areas that we don't want to venture into because we just don't maybe like, like this verse here, God being angry? I don't want to think that. Well, God is not a humanistic God that is never angry. God gets angry about things, but he doesn't let that anger sit. It says here that God's anger is not a tit-for-tat anger. The anger is is not requiring us for our sins. The anger is not retributive. God is not trying to maybe emotionally sort of beat us up because we humiliated God. You hurt, you humiliated me, I'm going to humiliate you. You hurt my feelings and I'm going to hurt your feelings. Payback anger in a family never works. It just never works. It always poisons. On the other hand, God does get great angry, but he will not harbor his anger forever. This is not the kind of God who never gets anger, angry. Let me explain what kind of anger this is. Okay? It's an anger that's driven by, what did we just say? Compassion. compassion. The anger of God is driven by compassion. I think one of the major revelations for me as a believer this year has been that the sovereign plan of God is not fatalistic. It's not say, okay, sarah, sarah, what will be, will be. Uh, but it is the sovereignty of God is directed by his grace. That's why we never have to fear the plan of God. And number two here, we see here that the anger of God is what? How is it guided? How is it tempered? How is it toned? How is it limited? How is it pulled back? It's done by his compassion. Because compassion is driving the anger. It's deliberate. It's intentional. And it's personal. That makes sense? This is the anger that God that God has. I, I heard a quote, and I couldn't find who said it, but it goes like this. The more a father loves his son or daughter, 
the more he hates his son, the drunk, or his son, the liar, the more he hates the son, the traitor. If God were not angry over how we are destroying ourselves, God would not be a good God. Amen? Compassionate anger. And I think that we as dads, when we look at our kid doing something that we know is going to be destructive and that is not who he is, we are, we are angry at what that could turn out. When I think about, when I think about what could harm the family, what, when I think about what could harm people, that causes the, the right kind of anger. If God as Father would not get angry, he would actually hate us. If God didn't get angry about things that are motivated by his compassion, that would actually mean that he hates us. And what is the opposite of love? Somebody would say, what? Hate, right? No. The opposite of love is indifference. Like when I could say, when I say, well, I could, you know, take it or leave that or whatever your decision, whatever you want to do, because love gets involved. And so number three, so that's number two, to understand God's, God as Father, we understand that he, we are absolutely safe, number two, that there's compassionate anger in our lives, that God creates a compassionate anger for us because of his zeal and his jealousness over us. It's not a possessive or perverted love. It is a compassionate love. And then number three, the third thing of what it means that God is Father is ultimate home. This really touched me when I was reading this last night and just thinking about it this morning. Ultimate home. What does that mean, ultimate home? Let's read verse 15. When we feel absolute safety and understand compassion and anger, then thirdly, I'm ultimately home. Verse 15, as for man, Psalm 103, verse 15, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Look at those words. And its place knows it no more. Now, How does that relate to the compassion and the fatherhood of God? These words, these haunting words, the place remembers it no more. It's like this. There's nothing worse, more, there's nothing worse than going back to a place where you grew up and no one remembers you. Friends and families have moved on and you don't even fit in anyone's life anymore. Has that ever happened to you? You go somewhere and you just don't fit there anymore. People have moved on and you kind of feel left behind. We all know every place we fit in, school, work, friends, but home... Home is a place that fits you. Home is the place where everything in the house is the way you want it to be. It's where the chairs are, are where you want it. It's where the architect and the furniture, my wife and I are praying about, we'd like to see, we'd like to build a house in the future. And we're just talking about the plans and how that would fit us. The smells and all those things that, that makes home. Home is what fits us. Now, how does that, what does this mean for us? It's interesting, I read a statistic recently that $10 billion a year are spent on foreign-born Americans going back home to visit their home country. $10 billion. There's this huge industry of people wanting to go back to their roots. You know, this, this 23andMe, right? This, you know, do your genealogy, find out your roots, find out all this. There's this, there's this real sense that people are looking for their place. They're looking for a place, they're looking for their foundation. They're looking for a place to launch from. Sometimes when there's huge up, up, um, uh, when there's just up, upheavals in a person's life, what do they usually do? They go back to where they came from. 
Remember when Joshua passes away, he dies at the end of the book of Joshua? What does it say? Everybody, every man went back to his own tent. Why, that's human nature. When there's no faith, when there's no trust and understanding and compassion of God, there's no more faith and people just kind of shrink back to what is natural and what is their place. And so we could spend our whole life, if we don't understand what home is for us spiritually, that home is in the Father, if we don't understand that, our whole life until the day we die, we're going to be, we're going to be chasing shadows and wisps, trying to find where do I belong, where do I fit in, where do I feel accepted, where do I feel loved. And people can spend their whole lives and never discover that. These verses are telling us, the next, the next verses here tell us, where was Jesus' home, by the way, when Jesus was on this earth? Where did Jesus, where was his home? When you think about Jesus' daily walk for the three years, I mean, for the 33 years that he was on this earth, what was home for him? What was home? Just think about it for a second. It's a question. Where was home for Jesus? Like, when the Pharisees were giving him a hard time, when his disciples were being dumber than a doornail, and, and nobody understood where he was coming from. He was a single man. He did not have a wife. He did not have a woman to give him love and compassion and understanding. He was on his own. He many times didn't have a place to lay his head. What was home for Jesus? It was communion with the Father, wasn't it? In prayer. It was he would draw, he would go to this mountain alone in the middle of the night and pray. Every time we see Jesus address God in the, in the New Testament. What is he saying? What's the title that he uses? My what? My what? What? My father, right? He says, my father. There's only one time in the Bible that Jesus addresses his father, not his father, but as God. And when was that? He said, my God, my God. Why? Because Jesus, God had turned his face from his son because the sin of the world was upon him. The guilt of the world was upon him. He was like that mother who saw her baby was about ready to be divided and killed and, and, and she said, I will, I, will, I will act as the liar here. I will, I, will, um, I will sacrifice my motherhood so that my baby can live. This was, the, this was the attitude of Jesus when he was on the cross and he said, he didn't say my father, my father. He said, my God, my God. Because at that moment, his relationship with his father in some incredible way that I cannot figure out. In, in some way, God turned his face away so that why? So that you and I would never be without a place in the heavenlies. Think of, of John chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. It says, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I'm going to the father, to my father, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Isn't that awesome? Before we got, before we got married, six months before I, I got married with my wife, she was living in the state. She was in Baltimore going to Bible college. I was on the mission field in Ukraine. And for six months, I was preparing this apartment, just doing remodeling. And it was just a simple place, preparing the place for where we were going to live. And I remember preparing that place, thinking, I'm preparing a place. We're going to live here. We're going to have our married life is going to be here. We're going to be cooking here. We're going to be, you know, this is going to be the place where we live. In God's mind, Jesus said, there's a plan, guys. Disciples, there's a plan. Do not fret. I think as a dad, sometimes we can be, fear can be projected at you. Don't live in fear. Jesus was separated from his ultimate home so that we would never ha ever have to be. I want to close with this. Verse 16, uh, it says that there was no place. There's no place. But in verse 17, there's a contrast. 
But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. I wonder why sometimes I and my generation are following God and maybe previous generations in my family were not. And I think it's because there's a family member there somewhere that we don't know about that honored God, that, that just lived in awe and wonder of God. It just There's just maybe someone that we don't know about, but when we get to heaven, we're going to meet this grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather who lived in this worshipful attitude and, and relationship with God's love. Verse 17 says this, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. I just want to say this, is that God's love is our home. As a dad, and this is where I want to get practical, God's love is our home. The, Lord, the Lord's love is the only place where you and I can go where they have to take us in. You ever been in a place where there's no one that's going to take you in? And you just know there's one place, if I go there, they're going to take me in. This is the Lord's love. In closing, how does God affirm this in, our, in, in us as dads? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, 4 addresses anger in dads. And it's, and it's an anger that's not governed and controlled by compassion. And anger is this, and all of us suffer from this. Anger is an all-consuming emotion. It, co- it consumes all other emotions in our soul until there's no other emotion left. And then it goes on to consume our kids' emotions until there's none left in our kids. That is when there's an exasperated child. This is why it's so important for us as dads that when we, when we come to the end of ourselves and we're just, and like our, our shame and our guilt and our insufficiencies pile onto us, we have to run to the Father and understand that this is where I can be loved and I can be built up as a dad. Very often, we either under-discipline or over-discipline our children. And I just want to quickly say, why do we do that? Why do we over-discipline or under-discipline our children? I think it's because we don't understand our gospel identity. We don't understand our identity in Christ. If we under-discipline our kids, it's probably because, and I heard one dad say this one time, he said, I sometimes under-discipline my kids because I want my kids' approval. I just can't face my kid and, and my kid saying, Dad, you're a cruel dad. You're just such a cruel dad. You're such a bad dad. That really hurt him. Or if we over-discipline our kids, it's because we can't bear them to be failures. I think that this was something in my case growing up in my family that we had to succeed. <laughs> we had to excel. We had to achieve. There was, no, there was just no place for failure. And this causes over-discipline in kids because we, don't, we can't bear to be, we as parents can't bear to see our kids be imperfect, imperfect because we are deriving our identity from our kids. We are, all in this, we are all in this and this all happens to us because we get utterly, utterly humiliated by our kids' failure because we think as parents we have failed. Here's the gospel right here. As dads, we have to develop our identity from the gospel. And if you're not a dad or whoever you are, you've got to develop your identity towards your kids from the grace of God. Your identity, I mean, here you, here's a, you have a kid, and this kid is like, he is an extension of your DNA, of you, of your family, of generations of you. We have to understand that there has to be something between me and the kid, and that is my identity in Christ that I'm a new creation in Christ, that I'm not my dad and I'm not my mom in the way we deal with kids, but I am a new creation in Christ. 
I am as the Father is in these three, in the, I have, I provide this child a sense of absolute safety, that whatever happens, that there is this environment of unconditional love because I fellowship and I commune with that unconditional love. Number two, I provide a child a sense of compassion and anger, that I'm angry, not at the kid, but I'm angry at what's happening in the kid. I'm angry at the devil. Never have I understood how bad the devil is until you get into the realm of kids. I mean, the devil, you know that the, the, the devil is the, is the greatest enemy of children. And thirdly, thirdly, when we understand what home is, we can provide an environment for our kids where they can grow up in a sense of safety. And we can fail. When we fail as dads, we can understand that my identity is from, is from Christ, that I'm not trying to portray to my kid that I'm, un, that I'm infallible. Actually, it's kind of good for your kid to see that you're not perfect but that you know what to do like when when dad says okay kid let's let's just pray let's get together and pray or let's just think this through with god or what does the bible say about this i think your kids our kids will respect us more that's all i'll just close with this is that the gospel sets us free from the presence and the bondage that comes from not having our identity as a father derived from security that we have in our father in heaven i think this is a great prayer our father in heaven hallowed be thy name Derive your identity from God. Derive your identity from God. Derive your, your, your security from God. There's a lot of things we're worried about, isn't there? We're worried. We're worried about kids' decisions. We're thinking, like, what's going to happen? You know, my wife and I, we're fostering this little kiddo one week, and I'm experiencing anxieties I've never experienced in my life, you know? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And not about the kid, about, but about the future, it's like, what about the future? What's going to happen here, you know? And we live in a world that's out of control, but it's not. We live in a world that is just so corrupt and so perverse. And we just have to fall on our knees and say, God, you are the sovereign God. You are the almighty God. You are king. You love this kid more than I do. <laughs> and what do I have to fear? Because if you pull this kid out of the situation it was in and put it in, in our midst... You must love this kid. And that's when we understand the right attitude towards our dads, your heroes. I love what Chris said, that we are warriors. Fight for your families. Fight for your marriages. If you have a dad, reach out to him today. Call him up. Love him up. Just say, say, just say Dad, thank you. Thanks, Dad. I was just such an idiot sometimes. I was out of my mind. And maybe he's not even saved. Just call him and say, Dad, I just want to tell you, I love you, man. Thanks for not quitting. And even if you did quit that, I love you anyway because God never quit on you. And I'm going to express that unconditional love to you because it's full cycle, finished work. Amen? Okay. God's for you guys. Let's close in prayer.